Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where you'll receive a boost of inspiration, practical advice, and tools to maximize your success and personal happiness. And that's not all. You'll also get plenty of guidance on how you can use your gifts, talents, and compassion to contribute towards making the world a better place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter for a preview of what's in store and to also receive a free ebook. To sign up, simply visit www.thedreamcatch.com. Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to the host of the Dreamcatcher podcast, Celine Chinoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dreamcatcher podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. As life happens, we may lose ourselves and miss out on becoming the best version of who we are. We forget what and who truly matters because of social pressures to fit an ideal. My guest, Christina Munlakiani, says that the key to reclaiming your worth is not fixing yourself, but changing your relationship with your imperfections. Today, she'll share more on how we can begin to embrace our blossom selves. Christina Manlakiani is the co-founder of Mindvalley, an online learning platform that focuses on personal growth and improving different aspects of your life. She has been in the personal transformational industry for over 20 years. She is an international speaker, entrepreneur, artist, philanthropist, and everyday life philosopher. Christina is also the author of three transformational quests, Seven Days to Happiness, Live by Your Own Rules, and The Art of Being Blossom. In this interview, Christina shares her story and reflection points to help you transform from the perfect you into the real you. She'll share ways to navigate external and internal critics so that you can embody a life where no one needs fixing. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hi, Christina. How are you doing today? Hi, Celine. Thank you. I'm doing fine. Great, great. Uh, I'm so glad that we've had the chance to connect today. I've actually had the pleasure of seeing you speak at a couple of Mind Valley events. And I found your story and your message to be very inspiring. So I'm glad that our audience will be able to experience that during our conversation today. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. It's actually, I really, really appreciate when people let me share my story, not just my message more than than my story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, because you have a beautiful message to share as well, right? Okay, so Christina, you've written a new book titled Becoming Flossom. Love the title. And uh, in addition to giving us a framework for overcoming self-doubt and perfectionist tendencies, you open up about your own struggles. Um, You write that you realized that you were living a lie when you were around 40 years old and that you were wearing a mask. And I think a lot of women can relate to that, myself included. So what did you learn from this self-realization? And how did how did that lead to you embracing your authenticity? 
Oh, uh, yes, this story is kind of the prequel to the whole book, although my book is not about my story at all. And um, I realized that this is a very common story for almost uh, everyone. To a degree, uh, mostly people get to that point where they they have those realizations that they are not quite sure if what they present to the world is the real the real thing. Uh, and I think uh, I think it's a very common common situation. In fact, uh, you know, I, I have this tendency to write about everyday life things. I call myself everyday life philosopher. And my I remember one of my editors, uh, she's she wrote to me and she said, Christina, why are all your stories so down to earth and simple? Like, don't you want to, uh, you know, share something dramatic? But I think that's a, that's a, the beauty of. Um, of being a real-life philosopher is, uh, is that you talk about things that are relevant to everyone. Now, um, what I realized, well, first of all, I use I use the terminology which uh, I came up with as I was trying to discover my own situation, why I was feeling the way I did. But later I realized that there was uh, the, these phenomenon I researched, for example, in social sciences. There's In social sciences, there's a, a theory called the social roles theory. Uh, it's 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 part of psychology. Uh, so I call them masks, but uh, but that idea that we play different roles is researched. So it is normal. It's not like I'm the only person who wears masks. We all do, and it's uh, quite simple and and actually natural uh, because we have to adapt to our circumstances. A very simple example would be: you go on a wonderful holiday, you come back, and the story that you tell about that holiday to say to your girlfriends, to your mother, or to your children would be very different, depending on your social circumstances. So it is absolutely natural to adjust uh, and and therefore change your uh, script a little bit, change your role a little bit, change the decorations. Uh, so that, there's nothing wrong about that. Uh, and there's nothing wrong about, uh, you know, realizing that you're in midlife crisis at, at, at around 40. What's the problem with this whole situation is when you start feeling that uh, something is uh, wrong with you or something is not right with you, that you have no right to feel depressed uh, because you have achieved all your dreams. You have a beautiful, let's say, family and job and whatnot. How dare you? Uh, you whatever you're feeling somehow is uh, some somehow is wrong that you're not supposed to feel this way. This is the real problem, and that's where my journey begins. When I started uh, questioning, why do I feel bad about the things that I feel about my life? So not why I feel bad about my life, but why do I feel bad about not being happy um, where I am? Yeah, that's a good distinction. I guess what I want to know is how, how did that feel? Because a lot of women, they might be kind of like doubting themselves like you did. Like, is, am I being too, am I being too fussy? Am I being, you know, too much of a perfectionist wanting my life to look a certain way or are things really out of alignment? So mm. what, what did that feel like for you? How did you know that things had to change? Well, uh, how do you find out that you're lost <laughs> in essence? Uh, right. I I think uh, it comes in many different little signals. Uh, in uh, in scientific terms, it's called cognitive dissonance. Is when you have contradictory feelings simultaneously. For example, you dedicate yourself to work and you're kind of enjoying what you're doing, but you feel guilty as a mother. Shouldn't you spend be spending more time with with children? Or um, you know, uh, you. Uh, again, the role of the mother generally tends to be deprioritized. That's just the the, the way the society runs. Uh, another example: you 
that's something what I felt, felt a lot. I would meet people and the first question they ask is, how are the kids doing? And after they ask that question, um, the conversation ends. And I always felt, guys, but I do more than just being a mother. Like, shall we talk about my work or whatever? But, and and that in itself is is a the way we think, which is okay. But what, what I didn't like was the feeling of, of guilt. Why can't I be just happy with being uh, perceived as a mother? I'm a, I'm a mother. I, I love my children very much. I, they are my highest priority. And people who work with me know that I will say a very straight no to things if, if, um, to work work related tasks if i have to deprioritize my children i will prioritize my children but i felt i felt really bad i thought i'm a bad mom if uh, i feel bad uh, when people only ask me about me being a mother and and these kind of feelings you know when you you feel something and you think you're not supposed to feel this way uh you are dumped and you don't feel uh, devastated you feel relieved or your project doesn't work out and rather than feeling you know i should we think that we should feel in a certain way when we feel but you for example feel excited oh i'm going to try something i've always wanted to try you've been mm-hmm. uh you know fired from the job but you're not worried about uh, paying out the, the the mortgage you're actually excited that finally i'm forced to do something what i love to do so whenever you feel cognitive dissonance that what you're feeling is somehow not what you're supposed to feel that's usually a sign that you're not completely clear about who you are and what you do in this world and what you want and what your values are Uh, and there is a very good likelihood that you're a little bit lost because you can't really understand why 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 am i feeling this way what am i supposed to be yeah, yeah, that's a great answer. Very specific, and I'm sure a lot of people can uh, can get into that and see are they experiencing cognitive dissonance. And um, don't you think it also has to do with our society's kind of obsession with success and achievement and status? You actually read in the book that Western society idolizes hustling and considers it a status symbol. Now, how, de- how does that contribute to self-worth in our identity? And what is your advice for those who are kind of tackling that? So, um, you know, I would say my favorite phrase, the fact that our society is obsessed by uh, success and uh, status and, and, and all such things is half the problem. The real problem is that we buy into that obsession mm-hmm. because who says that you have to be successful? It's our choice. Very often when we face the choice between, let's say, the brain and the heart, we go with the brain because it makes more sense to us. We are taught that we have to be logical, we have to be rational. Uh, Very simple examples. When young people choose uh, their career or what they want to study. I wanted to study astrophysics, but I heard a very logical um, argument why go into that? How how are you supposed to make money doing, let's say, art or music, right? It's not a real career. Get a real career. Or um, or when we say when we are in a relationship and everything is nice on the surface, but you don't feel fulfilled. So do you dare to step out of that? Or does your logic say, no, but your relationship is okay? stay in it. So very often when we have um, 
we have a, a choice between our heart and our brain. We will go with our brain. In fact, I remember there was uh, this uh, idea circulating in internet a few years ago. Don't don't follow your heart. It's bad advice. Um, I but- think the Stoics say that because I recently interviewed a professor in Stoicism, and it's like you know, they believe that you should be a little bit cautious about being over-emotional when it comes to decision-making. I think they have issues with being emotional, and that's where the uh, sentence ends. But I would say (laughs) if you're talking about Stoicism as an ancient philosophy, then we have to understand it comes from many years ago, thousands of Mm -hmm. years ago. And I think while it's a fascinating philosophy and it's really popular nowadays, I think it's doing it is a huge disservice. But that aside, uh, yeah. whenever we face the choice between uh, between the heart and the brain or success and happiness, we choose success yeah. because we believe that this is the right way. This is the way. And happiness is the prize at the end of the journey. That's just how we understand life. So it's it's okay that society is obsessed with success. Let them be whatever they want to be. But the thing is that we all buy into it and we all make those choices very often subconsciously because we think that success is a sure thing. At least we understand how to achieve that. Work harder, work longer, put more effort, you know, uh, brace your knuckles. We get that. We understand putting more effort. We don't understand how happiness works. So we will never choose it because it feels like a risky choice. Mm -hmm. So naturally, if you keep choosing, you know, your brain over your heart over and over again, success over happiness over and over again, you know, the rational choice over what your well-being or what your heart is telling you, you know, you're not going to be happy there. You're not going to be feeling uh, fulfilled there. If we keep doing that, no wonder we, we get lost. But we have to also take the responsibility. It's not the society expecting that from you. It is your choice. And I have to make a disclaimer, of course, I'm talking to the people who live in the, uh, you know, free societies or relatively free societies, because I've lived 16 years in Asia. And I know that there are people and there are circumstances where you don't get to make your choice. Uh, but if you thank you for in- saying that, it's great uh, that you show cultural sensitivity. Well, I was born in Soviet Union. so Yeah, yeah. And I love that you bring a lot of your background, like how it impacted you and your views on life. And um, yeah, it definitely adds another layer to your teachings. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for noting that. Uh, yeah. so, so let's say if you live in a relatively free society, relatively uh, affluent society, most likely your choice of success was your personal choice. And the story that the society expects them from you, your peers expect them from you, your parents insist that it's a story which is very comfortable to tell yourself to feel better about your choices. That's just as it is. Yeah, I understand that. But what if someone is, say somebody is applying for a job, right? And they're they've been getting a lot of rejections. They've not, or they've been having very difficult interviews that are not materializing into an offer. How do they stay in this space of, um, you know, first of all, feeling content with where they are, but also not letting that impact their self-worth because that's the real world, right? They've got to have a certain level of competency, right? Mm -hmm. So, it's, I think that's when it starts getting challenging. 
So what would your advice be for somebody who is in that stage? Or if they're dating somebody, for instance, and they're just not finding the right person, that kind of space. So, um, well, first of all, as research says that success is uh, 50% uh, confidence and 50% competence. So it's 50-50. You need competence. You, you absolutely need confidence competence, but also the confidence. Now, if you're getting rejection, whether it's at work or in relationships, of course, it's going to make you feel bad, obviously. But I'll tell you, everything will impact your self-worth. Everything. People saying things, uh, people looking at you in a certain way, you misinterpreting other people, uh, lack of likes on your posts. Everything influences our self-worth. Oh, yeah. That's a big one for a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, of course, it's going to influence your self-worth. Now, uh, it doesn't have to, of course. But, you know, even uh, even people who have a decent relationship with themselves, you can hurt them. The question is not about whether you get hurt or rejected. The question is, um, you know... How, what do you choose to do with the, with the, those circumstances in your life? And I might not be a very good, um, person to suggest about your career because it's just not my area of research. And I might be a little bit vague or general about that when it comes to career, uh, And again, with a disclaimer that I'm talking to people who live in relatively safe and free and affluent societies because there are places where you can die if you don't have a job. But I live in Europe, you know. You you will not die. You will not end up on the street if you fail. Uh, you can start uh, your career, uh, you know, where they take you. There are there are a lot of different ways. I mean, I understand the uh, objective need to pay your bills, uh, right. but most of us, our lives are not in danger. And very often, we when we go for a job, we go for safety and security. You know, uh, Vision was recently asked about that. Like, so I'm supposed, am I supposed to, to uh, you know, drop my job if my company, let's say, doesn't make society better? He said, yes. How many of you have uh, lost a job, have been fired, have left a job? Hundred percent of people have been in the situation where they have either ended their contract uh, or or have been fired, and everybody's still alive. And that's as ironic or as uh, funny as it sounds, but it is true. It's not the question of life and death. Very uh, death. It's very often the question of your self-worth. Am I willing to go and do something which I think is beneath me? But trust me, I've waited tables and washed dishes. We've all done that. And uh, I've packed CDs while I was trying to make a career because... I needed to pay my bills. We, the fact that we think that the job is a security is a huge illusion. And you don't even need an economic crisis to realize that you are just as insecure in your job as you are in your own business. And I think if we as a humanity were a little bit, uh, you know, less stuck in our old ways, there would be many more people who would just work for themselves. Yes, it sounds like an unsteady uh, path, especially being freelance or self-employed because, you know, you depend on clients. But it is just as un- unsecure or insecure as as any job. But we just, yeah. it's just that, you know, uh, I don't remember who of the authors was it, Brene Brown or, or Susan David said that our problem is that we are trying to make uh, uncertain things certain. And by this attempt of, you know, creating certainty where there is an essence uncertainty, we make things even worse. Sure. You know, life is simple and deep. 
but we make it shallow and complicated. Right. And I think that's yes. our tendency to, we want to simplify everything because there is so much uncertainty. So we try to control. We, we grow and we grow our children uh, with some kind of structure. We want them to fit into that structure, you know, uh, get a good degree, uh, go to a right university, get a good profession, get a right job. That's the structure into which we try to fit our children. If we turned it into the essence, because this is the surface, the essence is what do you love to do? What is your value that you bring to the world? If you turn it this way, then maybe not so many of us would be obsessed about, you know, finding the right job. They would be obsessed about what is the problem I want to solve? What kind of value can I bring to this world? Yes, it seems like a scary path. And again, here we come to the same uh, choice, success versus happiness. You know, your brain versus your heart. Our brain says that a corporate career is more steady. Go for it. But our heart might say that I'd like to solve a problem in the world. But we'll go for something which we think is more uh, sure. Yes. Yeah, and and you actually say that a big part of that self-awareness comes from really trying to interpret and accept our feelings. You actually dedicate a whole chapter to that. Um, You say that we cannot shame or guilt ourselves for what we feel and that we should embrace those feelings, even if they're uncomfortable. Um, Can you please say more about that? Well, if you if we come back to the same idea, you know, I keep being rejected, uh, let's say, by by the uh, interviewers <laughs> or, or or dates. Yeah. Uh, does it? How does it make you feel? That's very or I don't good. have enough followers. People are not or liking that, my posts. <laughs> yeah, I've I've struggled with that. I've struggled with all of that. When I uh, finished my career in Estonia to move uh, after my then husband to New York, and mm-hmm. I discovered that in New York I'm not employable for many different reasons. I've I've heard no so many times. Uh, I've been divorced for four years, and I've had days. Maybe rejection and dates hasn't been my pain so much, but. Uh, I, I get the struggle with Instagram. I've built it. I've grown it. And then some algorithm changes and, you know, my following stuff is three times less active. Uh, and and that makes us feel uncomfortable. That makes us feel rejected. That makes us feel less than. Uh, am, I, am I worthless? So that's... Yeah. that's and a- younger generations, I'm sure your kids, I don't know if they're on social media, but younger kids, Gen Z... That is something that they have to contend with because they are like the TikTok generation. They are the Instagram generation. So it will it's a big too. part of their life. It will pass too. We, we all had our struggles. <laughs> I, I, I was young in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. I think we survived <laughs> yeah, yeah, in we, the 90s. Then <laughs> the yes. TikTok generation is going to survive. We, we okay. were in danger uh, from outside world. They're in danger from, from themselves, actually. Okay. Depression is the is the hard thing, but that aside, you know uh, that that feeling of discomfort and pain it's a good start. It's a good starting point. So, um, you know, for example, when your Instagram following is not growing as much as you like, and you feel bad, you ask yourself what 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 is it that makes you feel bad? What is this? Um, you know, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid that you have no value? Are you afraid that people don't like you? Uh, and if they don't like you, what does it mean? Does it, uh, does it change anything about your worth? Uh, in my case, what I came, uh, I came to a conclusion that um, I, I care about my message. 
And that's one of the platforms where I'm going to share my message, but that's not the only platform. I do interviews, I speak on stages, I have published a book. There are so many places to express myself. So while it's a little bit annoying. I'm good at it. Thank you. And it's a little bit annoying, you know, that uh, my Instagram after three years uh, kind of suffered. But is my goal to have a huge active Instagram or is my goal to spread my message? What What is my core value? My goal is to spread my message and I can live with my Instagram being less than perfect, because that's not important. If I want to focus on my Instagram being super lively, I might need to go do some, you know, plastic surgeries, expose my cleavage more. (laughs) You know, that works. (laughs) I, I know it does, but does it make me any closer to my values? Yes. The point the point about feeling good about yourself is not to uh, look on the surface and do the surface things and sell your soul to the devil for the slim chance of success. The point is knowing who you are and what is important to you and stick to that. And then no amount of criticism or failure is going to make you doubt yourself. I've 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 argued with people about my books. They say, you know, so-and-so's books was sold only 100,000. How, how dare you hope to sell millions? Because I think that I have a great book. That's why I dare. Yeah. Not because I think I'm better than so-and-so. They have beautiful business. They're a great speaker. They have done a great job. But I believe in my book. And yeah. that's what gives me the confidence and audacity. And one more thing you also talk about is perfection, right? And that's a big piece of, of, uh, of this book. And you, you coined a really fun term called Hermione syndrome, uh, (laughs) which speaks to the desire to be the perfect me. And I'm curious, how can you tell the difference between being under the influence of the Hermione syndrome and striving to be the best version of ourselves? Because we always want to improve and grow. And so how can we tell the difference between the two? Uh, you know, I've never had this um, distinction asked about, so I might have to think about it a little longer. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's yeah, I one... think they overlap. You know, I think that's I think like with a lot of things which um, which have uh, completely different influence on us, the the di- distinction is uh, is huge. So one of them, the Hermione syndrome uh, or being perfectionist, implies that there is. Uh, possibility of you being perfect (laughs) you being the best uh you being well the best probably is not such a hard thing depending on who you surround yourself with (laughs) but uh and you are surrounded by high achievers all the time so i i I, yeah (laughs) well it's it's an interesting thing yeah Uh, Yeah. now now wanting to be um Wanted to be a better version of yourself is definitely uh, is definitely a noble um, inclination. Now, the question: Do you want to just be better, or do you have that desire to be the best there is, the best there uh, possible? And that might be a very tricky question because uh, naturally we would all think, of course, I want to be the best that there is. But actually, it's it's such a long journey; it's a lifelong journey. Um, and I think it's healthier to just want to be better in every moment of your life. You know, next time I want to do better next time I want to make a better choice. Uh, I, again, as I said, you know, I've never thought about that distinction earlier. So yeah. Is it safe to say that the Hermione syndrome 
comes from a place of fear and inadequacy. Um, yeah, just feeling Definitely. that we that we are just not enough. Definitely, uh, there is fear in perfectionism, fear yeah. of failure, and fear of imperfection. People who are perfectionists, they have really hard times failing. It's really hard because for perfectionists, there is just one uh, one scenario of winning, winning the race, being the top of a hundred, a top of a thousand, a top of a million. Being the second is failure for a perfectionist. And that's a hard, really hard journey. Uh, fear of imperfection. Perfectionists just have to be perfect in everything. And allowing any kind of imperfection is painful, physically painful. So there is a lot of fear. Now, the healthy desire to be better is um, is tolerant of imperfection and of failure. You understand that you failing doesn't make you bad or doesn't make you worse. It just makes you human. You can be better. Being better and failing are not mutually exclusive. Perfection for perfectionists, it's mutually exclusive. You're either you're either good or you're a failure. But for a person who has a healthy desire to grow, uh, failure is just a natural natural part of the journey. If you fail a task, it doesn't make you an idiot or a loser. Just means that you challenged yourself maybe above what you were ready for. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to get to that place, you really need to work on your belief systems and any past conditioning that you, uh, that may have led to like a really strong inner critic, a voice that really, you know, shouts at you every time you fail, every time you mess up. There's a lot of that voice in our head. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> So yeah, I do. I do get that question uh, about self criticism. Isn't it good to criticize yourself? I think Stoics would agree. <laughs> They're the type. They they have pretty pretty. They want to examine everything. <laughs> they have a pretty high tolerance of imperfection. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sure, yeah. but um, but uh, yes, yeah, self criticism is an interesting thing. There is a um, there is definitely a place for you to uh, to say I could do this better, but very often we the the line is very blurred, and from healthy healthy feedback it turns into just constant nagging. You know, when you fail, you generally know where you could have done better. But the self critic actually makes it worse. I've heard this analogy somewhere. You know, when you when you get wounded, then you stab that wound again. So maybe maybe you not performing as well as you did was a wound, but you nagging yourself about it is stabbing that same wound. I, I think we as a society, we function on the idea that people are lazy and stupid. And a lot of the myths that we believe in come from that, from that uh, idea, from, from that theory that people are lazy and stupid. That's why you have to criticize yourself. That's why you have to be hard on yourself because if you are not, you're going to be yourself, lazy and stupid, lie in bed and do nothing. But that's not true. I do not know when was the last time you had like a prolonged holiday, but most of the people that I know, when they go on a holiday, they enjoy the first few days. They truly enjoy it. They sleep in, they go and get their breakfast done by someone else. But then at some point they start hitching. Mm -hmm. I believe that our constant fixation on the idea that people are lazy and stupid comes from one simple, simple uh, thing. 
we are just overworked and tired constantly. And the only thing now in our mind is to just to just relax for a moment. But once you do, you'll discover that we are perpetual machines. We never sl- slow down. And um, and very often that that thing that you have to criticize yourself is just overdoing it. If you learn to hear your uh, your heart, in fact, you don't even need to learn. Very often, cognitive dissonance comes from the fact that you know your truth, which is deep inside there. You just don't have the courage to admit it. It's as simple as that. We are not lazy. We're tired. We're not stupid. We're just scared to admit the truth. That's all. Yeah. And you actually talk about being blissfully ignorant to your depth and truth. And you said you felt that happened to you mostly in your 20s and 30s and a a part of you does want to go back to those carefree times and I can relate for sure so what I want to know is Christina what do you mean by truth in this context because that (laughs) that that word gets tossed around a lot right that phrase my truth this is my truth as so can you just clarify you know if it that means for you if it was tossed like you just did it would be a good thing uh, okay. But usually the my, the qualifier is omitted. And usually pr- truths are professed as absolutes. The truth right. be told. Yeah. Oh, but the truth is, you know, all those phrases, uh, yeah. people people throw around truth without the qualifier whose truth is that. Now, um, we, yeah, we are, and, and, you know, I listen to critics who, who really don't like that term and they think it's a symptom of wokeism. Uh, you know, my truth, my truth, as opposed to reality. And I think people who say that don't really understand the essence of that and what that actually means to the person who says that, because uh, it does have deep meaning. Um, so well, it depends on how you use my truth, right? Uh, first first uh, thought that I thought is, what is reality? Reality is an illusion, and we are all living in our own version of an illusion. Now, when it comes to why people don't like uh, the idea of my truth, I guess it's because it is very often is a, uh, it's, it's a prequel to an insult or to rudeness. And in that aspect, I also don't like it. I mean, when people say, oh, this is my truth, I'm just being honest. This is usually just a prequel to someone uh, without consideration for your feelings, without consideration for circumstances, just being rude very often. And in that aspect, I agree. That's like nobody knows, nobody wants your truth. Now, in my book, I don't talk about that. I talk about the idea that uh, truth in essence is very often subjective. There, there is, of course, some absolute truth out there. Usually it's in the sphere of the laws of physics. <laughs> but everything else is uh, somebody's version of the truth because we live mostly in a cognitive world, not the physical world. And I'm not the first one to talk about that. Pretty much everything around us was created first in this cognitive world. It was an idea. Take this computer or internet or telephone. It was all an idea, and ideas do materialize eventually. But the thing is that, you know, on a different planet, a chair could be something very different. So what is a chair in essence? So without going metaphysical, without being too metaphysical, uh, the point that I'm trying to make is that um, there are hardly any absolute truth there. So if if truth is so... uh, 
And I know I'm, I'm walking on thin ice right now because there will be people who will criticize me and say like, oh, of course there's absolute truth. <laughs> but... But you know, if, if I think people even, listening will uh, respect what you have to say, I, I give I give a little more context in my book to that. So yes. I, I I do make excuses <laughs> about <laughs> ethics and morals. But yes. the thing is that if you are, uh, and I'm loosely quoting a friend of mine, Marie Sapir, if you are to if you live in illusion, doesn't it make sense to choose the illusion that works for you? Oh, I like uh, that. I like that. <laughs> no, uh, but but that that is that is one side of it. The other side of this, and that's a little bit more painful one. If the truth is mostly the truth that you believe is truth, is mostly your version of it. It's your uh, version of reality that you live in. Then there is a huge likelihood that you might be wrong, mm. and that's a much more important piece of this puzzle. At any time. You might be wrong. And that's the painful thought. It's so hard for us to admit that we may be wrong. Now, when you allow yourself that, that you may be wrong, that opens the door to true growth and transformation. Because it, it lets you off the hook of your need and desire to be right, to be perfect. When you allow that you may be wrong, that you can fail, that you are imperfect, that gives you so much freedom to finally start expressing yourself fully. And stop being some, you know, <laughs> stop yeah. being that, 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 that person who is just that bundle dogmatic. of yes. trying so hard of being yeah. something that you're not. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when conflict arises, right? When people are having their own individual truths and they're trying to get on the same page, but they're so uh, attached to what, what they believe is uh, you know reality or their reality so i think uh that's also one of the byproducts of being so attached to it it's uh it's definitely affecting our relationships for sure if you <laughs> think of any of your of the arguments in uh let's say the re the most recent argument you had what uh what was your goal in that argument very often, when we go into any kind of argument, we go with a goal to prove to the other one that you're right and they're wrong. Whether you shape it uh, consciously or subconsciously, but that's that's usually, you you might say, oh no, I just want to get to the truth. What is the truth? Your version of the truth? And by definition, if you say you want to get to the truth, but the truth that I know is my version of it, then, uh, well, the side effect of that is that you want to prove the other one wrong. Do we ever go into argument uh, with, let's say, with a desire or a goal to understand another person, to understand their worldview, to understand where they come from? And that has nothing to do your, with your version of the truth suddenly. Or do we go into arguments with a desire to uh, create, you know, some kind of connection with that person? You might disagree, but you start seeing each other, start seeing each other in a different way. We, we don't go into arguments usually, usually uh, when we do it by default on autopilot, we go with one single goal to prove that I'm right and you're wrong, that my version of the truth is the one which is true. And uh, yeah, of course, it affects our relationships with the world. But uh, more than that, it also affects our ability to change. Because if we are not willing to see that world is so intricate and different, and yes, your version of the truth might be right, but understanding why some other someone else has a completely different picture of the world, 
might not convince you that you were wrong, but it might open your eyes to the way the world functions, to the way other people are, to their hearts, to other versions of reality. In my book, I do touch upon that a little bit. There is this theory about kids who are born bilingual. The, uh, in addition to a lot of cognitive advantages of being bilingual by birth, there is one very interesting advantage. These kids who are bilingual by birth, they understand a very complex philosophical idea that different systems create different, you know, picture of reality. So let's say different languages have different set of words. And a very simple example, this, uh, this is a glass. But depending yeah. on the system from which I'm looking at it, it may be uh, something else. So in English, in our in our system, it's a glass, but in a different system, it can be something else. You know, there are languages we don't, which don't have certain words or have words yes. or something that English doesn't have. But that is a philosophical concept that lets you see things in the context of the system. And if your system change changes, the the you know the uh, the, the phenomena changes. And that's and that's a, a very very uh, bizarre thing, which uh, which which kind of really requires some effort to understand. But that lets you off the hook of your stuck upness with yourself, and it opens up the doors for you to start seeing the world differently, to start to start understanding it differently, to grow and evolve. Because you don't get stuck. You realize that the, your stuckness is just you being in this one system. Very simple meme. I'm sure you all have seen that on internet. The two guys looking at the same number, but the guy on one side of the number the says- The six and the nine. It's a very simple illustration of that idea. Mm. Your system changes and the whole thing changes. So true. So what is the purpose of knowing your truth then? Because we've talked about how it can, all the caveats of being too attached to the truth and not being open to listening to other people or being open to other systems and ways of seeing the world. So what is the purpose of knowing our truth and how can that serve us? I think if you know your truth, uh, that gives you fortitude to actually uh, go through the world, <laughs> through other people's opinions. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's probably the most important for you personally. Uh, like we started this conversation about uh, the choice between success and happiness. Very often we deny our own truths when we go for something which is defined by the society or we're forced into something. And because we deny our own truths, we kind of give away our power. When you know your truth, nothing will, you know, nothing will take you off the track. Uh, it's it's a little, you know, it's maybe it's a little bit abstract like this, but um, for example, I, I have an accent. And I get criticized for that. My accent comes from the fact that uh, English is my third language. <laughs> I wasn't born with English. I learned it when I was uh, eight. I started learning it. So, um, but on the other hand, uh, I know that I uh, I do meditations really well, and that's uh, that's something which I connect with. I I know it. It's my truth. You know, I believe in that. I strongly believe in that. Uh, and um, I've had situations where where we do meditation for let's say 400 people, and then somebody walks out and says, "I just can't stand her accent. I can't focus." I mean, I just have to say, you have such a soothing voice. It's like perfect for meditation. So I really and and your <laughs> accent, it's it's very pleasant. I don't know what that person was thinking. 
But I, you know, that's that's my truth with which I have been living for now many years. I've I've believed in that. <laughs> Sorry, I, I chose to believe in that. Every time there was this question, I chose to believe in the fact that this is my thing because it's rooted in my values. Now, the last time when that happened and person said, I just can't focus and had to leave the, the room, it didn't bug me because his opinion was just his opinion. My truth was that meditations is my thing. I'm good at it. And I... I don't expect to be liked by everyone. My truth is that this is my thing. Usually that opinion doesn't bug me and I can't be liked by everyone. And that's the thing, you know, that's letting go of that need to be perfect. Being perfect means that everybody liked you. You went on stage and you had a perfect score of 5.0 out of 5 because every single person out of 400 or 200 or 2,000, whatever it is, uh, said that you deserved a 5 out of 5. That's being perfect, being true to your values, knowing that your value is so important to you, that you yeah. believe in this, that if any, if even there is somebody who is willing to walk out of your room because they don't like your accent, that's just their opinion. That's just their version of the truth. It doesn't change you. It doesn't change your self-worth. You just know that what you do is important to you and that's your value. And that's, I think, why it's important to understand your own truth because it gives you the fortitude to face the world and to challenge yourself. Mm. And you've been able to get to that place because you've been on this journey for a while now. So you've evolved to that place where people like who walk out of your meditation don't impact you. And I think that's, that's great. So this is a beautiful note to end our conversation on, uh, Christina. I really appreciate you sharing your story, your warmth and wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. It was a pleasure. I want to let everyone know that Christina's book, Becoming Flossom, The Key to Living an Imperfectly Authentic Life, is available wherever books are sold and on her website, christinamond.com. The link will be in the description. All right, Christina, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, you too. Okay, bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.